Let us go to the Lord in prayer that he gives help in, the, in such a sobering passage. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day in which you have made. Please calm our hearts. Please calm our minds. Please rid us of any distractions that may seek to take away what you would like us to hear from your word, to be reminded of, to know and to understand from your truth today. We need your help today, Lord. For you have given to those who believe in you the anointing to be taught your word. Lord, would you give us help even today? In Christ's name, amen. In the year 2015, there was a documentary premiering, and in it, a group of individuals was named the Dream Team. Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, Bird, Magic. No, not that Dream Team. But the Dream Team of Robert Shapiro, Johnny Cochran, Carl Douglas, F. Lee Bailey, and Robert Kardashian. This team of attorneys represented O.J. Simpson in his 1995 murder trial. Now, many were in intrigued by this team. Why? because of their ability to handle one of the most high-profiled murder cases in the world. The examination of eyewitnesses, the presentation of evidence, the ability to discredit a number of the prosecution's arguments, one of the most well-known defensive teams of all time. Despite the strength of these lawyers, their extraordinary abilities, their convincing arguments, there is one trial these men could never get the judge to acquit and say not guilty. This courtroom is one in which man by himself will always lose. There is nothing they can say there is nothing you and I can say to free ourselves from judgment being distributed. We will always lose. Entering by ourselves or with other men and women, we will always lose in the courtroom of God. We need the best defense attorney money can't get. And so we enter and the Apostle John wants us to have the assurance of our divine defense attorney. Today, 
Let us focus on what a joy it is to contemplate two facts about our divine defense attorney that we find in this passage. And that is, he serves as an advocate in verse 1 and as an atonement in verse 2. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The Lord's word reads this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You may be seated. Two verses, two powerful truths. Some of you may say, oh, man, two verses, we're getting out early. <laughs> but you can get a whole hour out of Jesus wept. Look with me now at, at, at verse 1. Verse 1, the Apostle John begins with this. He says, my little children. At this point, the Apostle John was older in age. He wasn't the same age when he wrote the Gospel of John. He was what we call today as a seasoned saint. He may have had a little gray, in it, gray on his head, maybe a little salt and pepper in his beard. He didn't have any children or was married, so what could it mean when he calls his audience my little children? Perhaps the readers, the recipients of this letter was younger. And notice he doesn't say child, but he says children, multiple. It's a reference to those whom he considers as his spiritual children. Growing up, I would hear about the mothers and the fathers of the church. And I never understood what age range it took for you to be a mother of the church or a father of the church. It could be many were borrowing from the language of John when they considered those whom they have discipled, cared for, looked after as not biological, but spiritual children. This is an encouragement for us because there are some who may never have biological children, but spiritual children are readily available. In fact, we all could be praying the Lord brings someone into our lives whom we can disciple, spend time with, have meals, and help to mature in the Lord. Why? Because this will pay dividends eternally. God may provide you with the opportunity to impact someone's life whom you have never ever had any blood relationship to. 
It's quite like John is doing here. But why is John writing? What is the purpose? Earlier in chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, so that we may have fellowship with him as his fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He gives another reason now when he says, I am writing. I am presently recording these things to you. This is direct. Why? He says, so that you may not sin. So that you may not transgress. So that you may not commit an offense to God. Friends, this is pastoral. This is a caring pastor. This is love. Sadly today, there are many pastors who don't care if members sin. There are many pastors who have manipulated members to violate their consciences to sin. A true shepherd does not want the flock to sin against the chief shepherd for their own agenda. A true pastor directs the flock from sin. He doesn't lead them to it. Notice what he says next. But if anyone does sin, listen, John knows believers will sin. In fact, he mentions it in chapter 1 and verse 8. It is a condition. It is to imply there is a time when both you and I will sin. There is a time when believers will yield to the temptations of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. However, it shouldn't be a practice. It shouldn't be celebrated. But there are times when believers give in to sin. The difference is how we respond to sin. Go back and listen a couple of few weeks ago. We covered this in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Believers confess sin and seek to turn from it. However, John here wants us to be guarded and to remember an important truth. You and I will sin. And there are some who take it a step further, who feel as if their sin, that there's no hope beyond their sin. Guilt has been weighing you down for years. You feel as if the sins you face or have faced are inescapable and nothing can save you. You put yourself under your own wrath rather than being concerned about the wrath of God. You are bearing a burden you cannot carry. You may even have some people who bring up your past sins and rub it in your face. You already knew, you already knew the mud that was on your face. But I want you to know you have someone to turn to. Don't feel as if there is no redemption because these are the lies of Satan. You and I have someone 
who can go on our behalf in the divine courtroom. But if anyone does sin, he gives us some reassurance. We believers have an advocate. Notice a few months ago, I was watching Coach Prime or Deion Sanders walking into the media room after his team lost to Oregon. He looked dejected and began the post-game interview with this message. He said, first and foremost, thank the Lord for allowing this to transpire. It was a good old-fashioned butt-kicking. There's no excuses, no nothing. Their coaches did a heck of a job preparing the team, and obviously, we didn't. I mean, that was a really good old-fashioned butt-kicking. We went into the game wanting to dominate several phases. We lost offensively, defensively, as well as special teams. That fake punt kind of got them really rolling, and they didn't stop ever since. We couldn't advance the ball rushing or throwing the ball as well. It seemed like they had our number, but hats off to their coaching staff and the head coach. Great job. They were truly prepared. Now, after listening to this, I thought through. The interesting thing about coaches and post-game interviews was this. Dion wasn't on the field playing. Yet, he served as an advocate speaking on behalf of the team, defending the decisions the players made on the field, willing to take the punishment of criticism from sports reporters and the general public alike. And like the players, Christians have a mediator. They have an advocate in the divine courtroom. We have an intercessor. We have one who appears on our behalf, one who pleads our case, our divine defense attorney. We need an advocate, why? Because we have someone accusing us before God. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, John says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, Satan, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Friends, Satan does not want you close to God. He wants you as far away, as distracted as possible. He is not going to help you get to heaven. And because of that, we need someone speaking on our behalf. We need a mediator. And the interesting thing is mediation happens all of the time. Acts of mediation occur on jobs, in marriages, parents on behalf of their children at schools. Mediation is needed usually because of some conflict has occurred between two parties. In fact, the act of mediation is found in the Old Testament. Moses was a mediator who said in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. One writer has said, instances of mediators in the Old Testament include prophets, kings, and priests. Prophets bring the word of God from God to the people. Kings, when they submit to God, bring God's rule to bear on the people. Priests represent the people in coming before God's presence. Satan hasn't given up his job. And in fact, if you are a believer of the way, be encouraged because you and I have an advocate. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is our advocate with the Father. He is going on our behalf. As Satan is the prosecuting attorney saying, you are deserving of hell, they call themselves followers of you. They are deserving of separation from you. Look at what he did back in 1965. Look at what he did two weeks ago. Look at who she slept with. They don't love you. And Jesus is saying, Father, look at me. Don't count them guilty. Charge it to my account. I will pay every debt they owe. And he can do this. Why? Because he is righteous. He is the righteous one speaking on behalf of those who know they are unrighteous. The demand the Father requires is perfection for the penalty of sin. And this is a debt you and I can never repay. The righteous one does not leave us without sure access to the God of mercy. We have access because of Christ's payment upon the cross. He is righteous and he advocates on his followers' behalf so that they may have the Father's eternal presence. Jesus Christ is not only righteous, eternally perfect without any darkness, or, and he's committed no sin. He didn't commit sin. He bore the wrath because of sin. Our defense attorney is our advocate. He is also, fact number two, our atonement. He was the sacrifice needed in order to satisfy the wrath of God. Look with me now in verse two. Verse two says, he is the propitiation. Uh-oh, big word alert. Try saying that three times fast. 
But the word propitiation means appeasement necessitated by sin. Or let's break it down even further, because we don't necessarily have to use that. But one writer has said sin offering or wrath-bearing sacrifice. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He was our substitute. He took the place you and I deserved. Atonement refers to cleansing the sinner, bringing about forgiveness and the removal of wrath. Christ interceded on our behalf and took the punishment we deserve. This is right along with what John said earlier in chapter 1 and verse 7, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He didn't say some sin. He said all sin. Now, think about this for a moment. God has given his son as an expression of love so that we can be reconciled to him. He sacrificed him. Some of us aren't even willing to sacrifice a parking spot. But why was sacrifice needed? Where did this come from? We're not going to read it all again, but in Leviticus chapter 16, (laughs) the Lord told Moses that Aaron shall enter the holy place with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Atonement means to cover for, not count against. Atonement is the cleansing of unrighteousness. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 36, the Lord commanded, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Then if you drop down to verse 42, it says there shall be regular burnt offerings, and it is there that the Lord will meet with you to speak to you there. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, a priest would take a pure bull or ram and sacrifice it as an offering that atonement would be made for himself and for his household. A covering had to be made. Blood had to be shed. Atonement was needed. It was needed then. It it was needed now in order to cleanse us, John says, for our sins. Did you know you can't enter the presence of God and still be stained by sin? Jesus' death, his sacrifice was for our sins. John says our sins. He includes himself. He uses the personal pronoun to indicate those who recognize their sins. 
He not only includes himself, but the believers that he is writing to. If there's one thing that we need to walk away from today from, and that is this, Jesus paid the price for our sins, for our lust, for our greed, for our anger, for our pride, for our selfishness. Jesus paid the price for it all. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, Hebrews chapter 2 says. There was a man one time named John Quincy Archibald. John was a blue-collar factory worker. He was a devoted husband and father who sought to provide for his family at all costs. Now, during a baseball game, his son collapsed of a rare heart condition, and he needed a transplant. And at this point, John goes into a frantic race against time. His son needed a heart transplant, and he needed it fast. John was down on money. His insurance had not been activated. He couldn't get any assistance from the hospital, so he took matters into his own hands. Some of you may know this story. He sold his car, his house, his wedding ring, sacrificing everything he could in order that his son could get the transplant he needed in order to live. All of this was still to no avail. In the last attempt, John kidnaps a surgeon to perform the surgery needed. Now, we don't condone kidnapping in order to get what we want. But John takes hostage the surgeon and tells him, give him my heart. My son will live. I don't care what happens to me. Give him my heart. I will not, he says, I am his father. He can have my heart. In essence, he was saying, despite the conditions, my son will not face death now. I am willing to sacrifice everything, including my own life, even if it means death, that Get this, that sin has brought a defective heart condition in order for my son to live. Jesus has said, take my life in order that they may live. Take my life so that they may be counted as righteous. Take my righteousness and place it on them. No, they don't deserve it, but because I love them so much, I am willing to take on the wrath they rightfully deserve. We can avert God's punishment. How? Because God's grace has been extended to us by way of his son. If you look, I want us to stop just for a moment 
If you look back over your life, think about how the graciousness of God has been extended to you in your life. Jesus Christ has bore the wrath for our sins. And John continues by saying, and not for ours only, Jesus didn't sacrifice himself, didn't bear the wrath for only our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Wait. So Jesus' death on the cross was not only for us? It wasn't only for his people? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the verse says he will save his people from their sins. Well, that's what the verse says. And scripture is clear, right? Is atonement only for a select group or is the cleansing of sins for everyone? Now, this is what theologians call a theological tension. This is the case when scripture says one thing in one area and another thing in another area. For example, only God can love the world in John chapter 3 verse 16, yet tell us not to love the world in 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. The question is, how do we make light of the tension? How do we reconcile the truths from Scripture? Well, I want you to know, we can make an attempt, but we know we are not the Almighty. And we know, uh, we know and we understand things only in part, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9 says. We don't know things fully. Everything is not as black and white as we would want it to be. And my attempt here is not to confuse us, but rather us to come to a place where we acknowledge the truths from Scripture, yet rest in the tension. And we need to rest in the tension because God's love is perfect and ours is not. The question is, does Jesus... is the question is, does Jesus cleanse everyone's sins? And if so, does this mean that we're all going to heaven? Now, carefully, because cleansing from sin means perfection. It means you're pure, you are spotless, you are blameless. And if you are pure, you can stand before God in heaven, right? We know from scripture though, Everyone is not going to heaven. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. There are some whose names are not written in the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There are some who Jesus is coming to make war with the sword of his mouth. Sadly, there are some today who are not bearing good fruit, who will be cut down and thrown into the fire. If Christ wipes out all of people's sins, therefore they would be made inheritors of eternal life, right? This is the belief called universalism. 
It means that everyone's sins are forgiven and everyone is going into heaven. And you have some who believe that. However, I would contend this is not what the Bible teaches. People are only going to heaven if they repent of their sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not speaking in defense of someone who doesn't trust and believe he is who he says that he is. We are left once again with the tension of what does it mean that Jesus is the propitiation, not only for our sins, but also of those of the whole world. Now, John doesn't give us clues to what this actually means, but here's what we do know from Scripture. Christ has come in the form of a man and gave his life upon the cross. His life was the sacrifice needed to appease the wrath of God. Christ's death brings about redemption to those who have been marred by sin. This redemption has been offered, extended to those who will turn from their sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice has been extended to the entire world. Not only the Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike. Salvation is a free gift. It has been outstretched to the entire world. Yet, everyone will not believe in him. Not everyone will accept this extension of free grace. Not everyone believes that they are in need of God's grace. In fact, they reject it. They shake their fist at it. And you have many today who believe they don't need forgiveness of sins. They believe that they can atone for their own sins. But Jesus right here is saying, I am the propitiation. Only Christ can bring redemption to a fallen world. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, many of us, this is one of the most well-quoted scriptures that we know. For God, that is the Father, so loved the world. This is the same word in this verse in 1 John. He loved the world so much, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. The father sacrificed the son. Why? That whoever believes in him, that's the key. We forget that part. We quote verse 16, but we forget verse 17. That whoever believes in him, that is Christ, shall not, shall never perish. They will never experience eternal separation from the Father, but will have eternal life. God has shared this branch to us all. Because at one time, all of us have been out in the ocean. Some are still out in the ocean drowning. And God has come by in a boat with a life vest his son, Jesus, and some of us would rather drown in the ocean rather than accept the life vest or the opportunity at new life. 
Some of us love death more than we love light. Some of us love the darkness rather than we love the light. We love being in bondage to sin rather than freedom in Christ. God has sent Christ in the world not to judge it, but that the world may be saved through him. Christ wants everyone in this room, in this building, this world to be saved. Will this be the day you turn your life over to Christ? Will this be the day you say, Father, forgive me. I need more of Christ. Will this be the day you say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to give my life in complete devotion and service to you. God has been saying, he's been extending his arms, saying, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You've been fighting for so long, stressed with the world's problems. And God is saying, I'm right here. That peace you're looking for, the world can't give it to you. The world will never satisfy you. And I'm right here, and I will give you all the satisfaction you need. Sin has bogged you down. It's weighing on you, and it'll, it'll continue to weigh you down until you come to Christ for forgiveness. Some of you have had people in your life who remind you of your sins of the past and what you're not doing, for, and you need their forgiveness rather than Christ's forgiveness. They like to take you back to the old you, attempting to get you to be distracted from the forgiveness you have already received in Christ Jesus. But I'm here today to tell you, rest in Christ. Don't be distracted with the world. Christ says, when you come to me for forgiveness, when you trust and believe in what I have done, I'll be your advocate. I'll be the atonement for your sins. There's some here today who have trusted Christ for salvation. Praise God. Continue to trust and believe in him. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily exercise. Lord, I need you to help me to get through this day. Sin is going to flare up. The world, the flesh, and the devil is going to come at me, and I need to be guarded with you and your word. Amen. Meditate on what Christ has done. Meditate on how your life has changed as a result of him. Give thanks to him for the cross. Give thanks to him for opening your eyes so that you can see the beauty of grace and mercy. Give thanks that sin, Satan, and death no longer have a stronghold on your life. Because Christ is your advocate. Christ is your atonement. You're standing in a room, 
and the prosecuting attorney stands up. He tells the judge, I am standing before you today to bring charges against blank. This person is guilty of lying, adultery, murder, lust, pride, anger, selfishness. They say they believe in you, walk in you, live for you, but they have lied to you and everyone around them. They say they believe in you. They say that they love others, but they're flat out mean. The prosecution brings evidence showing all the wicked things you have done. Matter of fact, it is so much evidence against you, it is years of information. He sits down, he says the prosecution rests its case. You lean over to your defense attorney and you ask him, is there anything I can do? He looks at you. He says, no. There's nothing you can do to satisfy this crime. You will receive the death penalty. The defense attorney, your defense attorney stands. He says, yes. This person has done all of these wicked things. In fact, they have broken your entire law. But I'm pleading on their behalf. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Please cancel the debt that they owe. Cancel all the wickedness. Cancel all the pain that they have caused. And the judge says, and why should I do that? Your defense attorney says, because whatever they owe, I'm going to pay it. Wait, what did you do? You did nothing? And you will pay the debt that they owe? A hush breaks out over the courtroom. The judge thinks for a moment and finally says, done. Slams his gavel down. It is finished. It is forgiven. You look over at your attorney and you ask, what can I do to repay you? He says, all I want is your life in full devotion to me. And this is the biggest mystery. This is the biggest misconception of the world. A loving God sending his only son to die for the sins of those who would give their lives in full devotion to him. There are some here today who've been running from their defense attorney, thinking that they can advocate for themselves, thinking they can represent themselves by their good deeds. You can represent yourself, all right, but your verdict is going to read guilty. So stop trying to defend yourself. The divine defense attorney is the only one who can advocate and pay the debt that you owe. And we can't fathom this misconception. I want you to think on the lyrics of this artist I was listening to recently. He says this, you probably have it all figured out, right? Like you're the type that believes that if you act right, then that just might make you righteous in God's sight. 
You've been a really good person. You followed the good book as much as you could. You probably didn't go to church as much as you should, but it's all good. I mean, you never really killed anybody, never really stole from anybody. You never lusted much or did much touching of any bodies. You never use the Lord's name in vain and you respect your neighbor. You try to maintain peace, love your enemies and not hold on to anger. You really believe that you could receive God's favor by your good deeds and right behaviors, but you're dead in your transgressions and need a savior because you could never win God's approval of the removal of sinful discretions. Your righteous act in removing God's wrath is, in fact, the biggest misconception. Let us pray. Father, we can't fathom, we can't comprehend the love you have for us, the love you have for those who have turned from their sins and believed upon you. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us to remember this truth, to have joy that Christ is our divine defensive attorney. And he has served as our advocate, and he has served as our atonement. Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to rest in the fact that there is nothing that we, we can do to achieve Christ's righteousness or your righteousness. And Lord, we pray that as we go throughout our weeks, that we remember these important truths that Christ is our defense, that he has served the sacrifice for our sins. So may we find joy, may we find rest, may we find peace in this glorious truth. We thank you for this day in which you have made. In Jesus' name, let every heart say, Amen. Amen. Amen.